After the premieres of our interviews on Saturday night, we like to get together for a live show. It isn't Saturday Night Live, but it is Socialist Night Live. Hello and welcome to Socialist Night Live. Tonight we are joined by some very special guests from the RMT, one of our favourite unions. We've done little bits and bobs with the RMT in the past and obviously some of you will recognise some of the people on this panel. So I'm going to go straight into the introductions. Uh, the first of them, I'm going to come to you, Jane. So Jane is going to be our... Um, some of you will recognise Jane from previous shows. Jane is going to be doing our comments section tonight and also coming in with her absolutely brilliant, well-rounded opinions as always. How are you doing, Jane? Oh, I'm good. Thank you for having me on here. Um, it's really nice to meet Steve and it's good to see Kat again because as someone who's caught a lot of trains in my life, I'm really, I'm really glad the RMT is standing up for this. You know, it's been put for the passengers as well. So thank you. And you're always welcome on here. And now we uh, have Kat again, another familiar face. Um, Kat, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. I'm good. You keeping well, Paul? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. I look like a child at the moment. I look about eight. I'm like I it. I'm like a shave. Suits you. Yeah, yeah. So I've when you're a suit on my head. It's good, yeah. It's good looks all around here. There's a lot less hair going on than there normally would be on Socialist Nightlife, so that's a, that's got to be a good thing for tonight, anyway. <laughs> Maybe we'll get more. We've had some hairy people on over the over the course of the series, and uh, me included. So yeah, a little bit more clean cut tonight. But I do like that. I do like the shaved head. It looks really good. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, and also for the first time, we've got Steve Headley. So uh, really pleased to have you on, Steve. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks very much for the invite. I'm the Senior Assistant General Secretary of the RMT. I'm, uh, I'm a socialist. I'm a, I'm a revolutionary. And um, well, we're, we're just lining up, I think, for one of the biggest battles in the, our union's history and perhaps in the history of the working, recent history of the working class. Okay, so what an introduction that is. So what is this uh, What is this biggest battle? Because I suppose like you can't say that without us immediately exploring <laughs> what this biggest battle is. And I'm like, you know, this is the kind of talk I like to hear as well, because I think we've been on the back foot as socialists in a lot of the left, but not in other parts of the left. And I would include RMT in one of the places where we're really not on the back foot. So what is this? Uh, what is this big battle coming up? Well, first of all, I'll just try to lightly, briefly introduce the whole ethos of the RMT and our, our rule book. It um, makes it quite quite clear. Rule one, clause four, that uh, we're out for socialism. We want to replace the capitalist system with socialism, with socialism and have a socialist society. So I'd like to think that, that guides all our actions. But the, the battle that's going to be coming up uh, pretty soon, and actually it's upon us now in many ways, is that the old network rail, and all the train operating companies and London Underground are using the the cloud of COVID, the sort of uh, the excuse of COVID to come for jobs, thousands of jobs, uh, drive a coach and horses through the terms and conditions that people have and attack pensions. And uh, I'll give you a quick example of the pensions. If there's a small company called Hull Trains, and if you've worked for them for 30 years, sorry, 20 years and you earn 30 grand, 
uh, you'll get 800 quid a month when you retire. The, the stuff that they want to bring in, the pension that they want to bring in, will reduce that the 375 quid a month. So you'll lose over half your pension and you'll lose a 20 grand lump sum. So that's a sort of uh, a tax that they're are coming our way. At, at the same time, of course, the government have bailed out these companies the over 10 billion pound, 10 billion pound during the pandemic. And incredibly, 1.5 billion of that 10 billion has gone straight into the, in their coffers of the shareholders of these companies. You know, these are people that haven't worked through the pandemic like our members. And many of our members on network rail and the train operating companies have suffered a two year pay freeze whilst the shareholders have sat at home, you know, uh, in the comfort of their living rooms. And they've picked up 1.5 billion pounds in shares. And uh, our members have had enough of it. So on top of that, not, not only do they want to make our members' lives a misery at work, but they want to make, a, they make them a misery when they retire. They want to have them living in poverty in old age. So that's the, that's the situation we're faced with. And we've had a mass meeting of all our reps, all our senior reps down in London, uh, last week and they've unanimously said that enough's enough and they're going to go against it now the last I'll finish on this point uh, for those of your viewers who are, are old enough to remember 1989 what we had was we had the trains we had the tube and then we had the buses all out together and with the government intent on slashing the budget of TFL again and we see that there's more negotiations and every time there's more negotiations the government demand more cuts I think we're going to have that same situation because we're going to have the RMT on strike on the tubes and on the on the trains. And I hope that uh, Sharon Graham and Unite, uh, she sounds very good, she's saying all the right things, but I really hope she steps up to the plate and the Unite Union step up to the plate so we can bring London Day a halt and indeed the country day a halt if that's what's needed. And you know this isn't just for transport workers, this is for all workers out there because we see the NHS, we see the teachers, we see the university lecturers, we see the cleaners all under attack. And I really wish, and I, I hope we do get to the stage where we just break the anti-trade union laws like people did in the 70s. And you would have rail workers and, uh, and, and building workers going on strike for nurses and losing the medical profession so they could keep going to work. We would go on strike for them. So that would be the ideal scenario. But I think that that's, I hope I've outlined what sort of really quite titanic classes are coming our way pretty soon. That said, what is it that stops people from doing that? I kind of know the answer to this one, but I think a lot of people at home might not understand why it is that we haven't seen the likes of teachers coming out for the teachers. Now, I'm a teacher trade unionist, and I've had people from other unions in a specific school crossing our picket line to go into work when we've been on strike and things like that. So why is it that, like there used to be a lot of solidarity action, didn't there? They used to, and, and I think in the USA as well, that was quite a, a strong thing, wasn't it? Where they would, where different unions would uh, be tra trade union sisters and, and go out on strike at the same time as one another. So why is, why does that not happen? Well, we've, we've been trained, haven't we? We've been trained by this government and the unions have been threatened with the sequestration of the funds. We've, as Tony Blair posted, we've got the most restrictive anti-trade union laws in Europe. And what, what happens is that uh, if there's solidarity action, if we don't uh, agree, agree we do ballots, if we don't uh, agree not to take action whenever workers in strike, the unions are sequestrated, their funds are taken off. But that shouldn't stop workers fighting back. And I think the latest tranche of anti-trade union laws, which want to make us on the, in the transport industry, 
actually agreed to a number of scabs. We have different percentage of scabs uh, to make a strike legal. That's that's not been implemented yet, but that's uh, in the in the on the drawing board. If that happens, that's a step too far for me. I think we've got to have uh, even if the the union bureaucracies. Uh, aren't prepared to break the law. I think we've got their rank and file organisations that can break the law and take on these anti-trade union laws because I think it inhibits workers uh, for fighting and, and winning uh, in a lot of cases. The fact that we've got to wait, wait months, really, because we have to give them notice. We have to give them two weeks of a, a notice of a ballot. We've got to then have the ballot. We've got to then give them two weeks notice of actions. Uh, we're months down the line before uh, things can actually take place. And in a lot of cases... If we had an immediate response, we'd win a lot sooner. So the bosses know that, and that's why they brought in the anti-union laws. And we as a working class, our consciousness has been uh, knocked back by decades, I think. And we've got to rebuild that consciousness. And if we want tactics to win, I think we need to break anti-union laws. That's, uh, that's, that's good fighting talk. That. Um, so, Kat, as someone who would be like on the on the front line of this, you're... So, can you describe the difference between like Steve's the um, senior assistant general secretary of the union and what are you in, in the RMT? Yes. So Steve and Steve and I have known each other many, many years. Um, so Steve's uh, is employed. His wage comes from the RMT. My wage comes from my employer. And I work on, on public transport. I work on London Underground. And I'm a, I'm a health and safety rep. I've been in this show and talked about, about that before. Uh, and, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll sketch it how it works in the London transport region. So we have branches. Uh, and in those branches, you have you have positions. So you have branch officials and you have reps. And reps covers, cover areas. Uh, and what I've been doing for the last three years as a senior rep is I've been on full-time release. But So as a rep, um, my wages from my employer. So what I'm expecting through my letterbox next week will be a ballot um, that is being sent out to all RMT members who work for TFL. Uh, and our ballot opens on Monday and I think it closes on the on the 10th of January. So what we will do is we will return our ballot. We'll be campaigning um, in our workplaces um, for people to vote yes for strike action and action short of a strike. Those ballots will be counted. Hopefully, we'll smash the anti-trade union laws, which are designed to obstruct our right to lawfully withdraw our labour or otherwise. Uh, and then we'll be all out. Um, as somebody who has done my fair share of picket lines over the years, and we were having this conversation just before the show started, it's uh, picket lines can be different depending on your employer and your workplace. They're not all the same. Um, they're not uniform. So, for example, on the tube, um, with the night tube strikes that's going on, I know Steve's going on a picket line later tonight, uh, and we'll have four lines out next weekend uh, as well. So it's two lines out this weekend, four next weekend. Um, picket lines start when people start work. And the tube, you know, uh, starts quite early. So you have drivers booking on at 4.15, 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and the point of a picket line is to encourage to <laughs> encourage people not to cross it. Um, so that means your picket line has to be there before the first booked on duty. So that's why, you know, we get up at 3.30 in the morning to get ourselves down and, and our picket lines are from 4.30 in the morning. I mean, the way strikes work is the times that they begin can chop and change depending on what is trying to be achieved. But, you know, there's, there's nothing particularly glamorous at standing outside Wembley Park Depot at 4.30 in the morning, but that's where I'm going to be next week. 
uh, and that's that's the right place. And it's uh, and just for clarity on Nighttube, it's not my grade. I represent station staff that's going out on strike. But we are an all grades union. And of course, I am going to be there showing complete solidarity to that picket line. And it was so good to see so many from my branch, the branch I'm a member of is called Neesden branch. We have signalers, train drivers, station staff, cleaners, people from the local community, Brent, uh, local councillors come down, you know, and some of them were five in the morning. But the first people I saw on that picket line, other than my friends, was the police who drove up in their car asked for the named picket line supervisor and asked for their reference you know and that that can be that can be an intimidating experience if you don't know that that's coming so that's what it's really like stood shivering at 4 30 in the morning outside Wembley Park Depot having a having a chat with a couple of coppers so you've just described something there and I think like that'll be familiar to people who have been on strike and things like that but there's some people who maybe have got sympathy with people or, or otherwise maybe they don't know any of this stuff maybe they don't know like so you've you've mentioned like what you, you mentioned a picket line what is a picket line what is it so well there's some there's some government guidance but i wouldn't i wouldn't um take that as the definition of what a picket line is it's a gathering of workers who have uh, lawfully balloted for strike action who, who are withdrawing their labor and they are there present in or just outside of their workplace. You normally have to stand right outside of it. You can't be on the premises. And you're there to prevent people crossing that picket line. You're there, you're there for, to ask people to show solidarity. You're there to be a visual and visceral reminder uh, of what is happening. And you're also there to, rep to represent your class as workers, you know. So um, a, a picket line is, is lots of things, uh, but the main purpose of it is to stop people coming into work and to withdraw their labour in solidarity with you. That's the point of it. Yeah, the, the, only thing, the only thing I would say there is what Kat's described as an official picket line. Of course, picket lines don't have to be official. Um, the Liverpool Dockers, for example, uh, was a strike that was unofficial. What you had is... Uh, temporary workers, people who work for an agency who were sacked and um, they set up a picket line and the doctors refused to cross that picket line. So that uh, two and a half years of action was actually unofficial action. It was never condoned by their trade union. And uh, it was a tremendous struggle. And uh, it was a struggle that united not just the working class in this country, but right across, right across the world, really. Uh, we had people from Europe, we had people from America, Australia, all coming and supporting the Liverpool Dockers, sending donations, uh, spreading the news about what was happening to them. So uh, a picket line is any any gathering of workers, any worker that's been sacked or or any worker that's in dispute with their employers, uh, setting up outside the, their place of work and asking people not to cross that picket line because they're in dispute. Um, I've got a couple of ideas for other questions, but I've noticed that, uh, as always, we've got some good comments coming in. So, Jane, could you address a couple of comments and Quantum Skyline in particular? But would you would you mm. mind uh, having a look at a couple of comments that have uh, you've spotted so far? Yeah, um, Neil's um, 
mentioned, just going back to um, what was said previously about Sharon Graham, United's union, it's my union as well actually, and Neil and me both hope that she will be standing with the RMT on this. Um, and Neil said, obviously, a good trade unionist never crosses a picket line. Um, but Quantum Skyline's got a question here. Um, do you think the media don't really represent striking staff fairly by explaining why the workers need to strike? All we seem to hear about is the disruption it will cause and negative responses from the public. Would you say that's the case? 100% well, that's the case. <laughs> Easy. Well, uh, the, media, the media are controlled by billionaires who are businessmen and uh, businesswomen. And I suppose, the, well, they are businessmen. They want to control the media. And they hate us. They hate the fact that uh, we're organising workers and workers are fighting back against people from their class. If you're a billionaire, you don't want the you don't want to lose any money by you know uppity workers uh, demanding more money, demanding a, a work life balance, and you know not to be working crazy shifts all over the place. Uh, you want the opposite of that, so you don't want to be dealing with trade unions. So anything that disrupts their money making facilities uh, will, will will suffer the full wrath of their organisations, and that's what we do. We we don't expect fairness. We don't expect fairness. I mean, I grew up in the north of Ireland, as you can probably hear from my accent, but unlike many people in this country, I never seen the BBC as impartial. I never saw them as impartial. I drew, I grew up with the BBC uh, presenting a very skewed picture. So I never I never harboured any illusions about the media in this country. And I can tell you that they're absolutely bent. You know, you don't get a fair rep, uh, reflection from anybody. Yeah, I, I remember, like say, it's funny when people say things like that. I remember a BBC journalist who interviewed me before and um, I said afterwards, are we going to get a fair crack here? And this journalist was honest. She was great. She said, depends on the editor. Depends what the editor wants it to say. Says, uh, I've, I've done it as fairly as I can, but who knows? And, and that, was, uh, that was the people who worked for the organisation there saying that, yeah, this could get spun whichever way we want to spin it. And... Uh, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Well, to be quite honest, if anybody had any illusions about the BBC, look at the way they treated Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, he was a man that fought all his life against racism, who'd stood outside synagogues uh, when the far right were trying to threaten synagogues. And all of a sudden, um, he was threatening the power and the privilege and the wealth of the ruling elite in this country. And all of a sudden, uh, the BBC uh, went out of its way. They, they portray this picture of him as an anti-Semite. Now, if, if that doesn't wake people up to the, you know, the, the absolute joke that the BBC is, the, 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 the absolute joke that they, they, they pretend to be that they're impartial, I don't think any, anything will. And that's, you know, that's, that's in the 21st century, isn't it? That's in the 21st century. So that's, the, that's the, the degree of control that the establishment have over the state propaganda organ, which is the BBC. Absolutely. So we've got, um, the, you talked about disruption there. So I guess the whole point of a strike, the power that you have as a worker is demonstrated through a strike, isn't it? Because like, I like, there's a, there's a famous case of the bankers in Ireland going on strike, isn't there? The, the, the people who were the, not the people who worked in banks, Actually, well, I think it was to an extent, but um, the bankers went on strike in Ireland for a while and nothing happened. There was no disruption. There was nothing really happened. So they went back to work. But if you've got someone like a transport worker goes on strike, you know about it. If you're if you work on the bins and you go on strike, 
people know about it doing the people understand that that is hugely disruptive and i think uh would you agree that like a strike is a way to demonstrate who really does the work who does the important work in the country who like the the people who without them the country would grind to a halt and is that what like is that part of the reason as well why the media what is so desperate to fight against people who go on strike I mean, we saw that in Glasgow, didn't we, COP26, when you had the, the cleanser workers uh, and you had uh, RMT members uh, take strike action uh, and Boris and Boris sit next to David Attenborough without a face mask, um, you know. And you also saw those beautiful, beautiful images of people joining the picket line in solidarity. You know, I, felt, I was really moved by, by that. And, and I don't, I really hope that's not a one-time thing because that kind of solidarity matters and it carries and it builds energy. And you know what, the best thing you can do if you don't understand or you're annoyed about not, for example, on the tube, not being able to get to work or get your kid to school, come and speak to us, come and speak to us. Um, come on our picket line, we'll have a chat. We don't, we don't have to be best friends, uh, but come and get to know us and understand what it is. Uh, we're fighting for and why it's got to this point because the whole point of strike action means everything else before that has failed um you know we don't start there we end up there and we only end up there when bosses don't negotiate with us fairly or we're being treated unfairly and and we decide collectively as working class people to not stand for it yeah i mean look the i think strikes do show where the power in society lies who actually does the work as indeed the pandemic did you know, uh, we had the the bosses and the bankers and the stockbrokers all working from home, and we had the the manual workers and those who ran the transport industry and the the uh, the refuge workers and the national health who did a fantastic job. You know, many hundreds of them um, perished in doing that job, and that's a that that is the the industrial strength, the the working class, if you like, who keep the country running, and and they are the important people in this country. The um, one, one thing I, I would raise, and this is this is what I think people and Cap mentioned COP26. Uh, public transport is the greenest form of transport, uh, without, without any doubt, uh, the greenest form of transport. If you want to take motorists off the road, then you encourage people to use the trains, the tubes, the buses, uh, and trams, whatever. And the cuts that the government have lined up uh, across the um, the spectrum of public transport are absolutely enormous, you know, absolutely enormous. They're talking about 10%, uh, at least 10% cuts. And what will that do? It'll, it'll exacerbate the climate crisis. You know, we've got this, we're, we're told that as socialists that, uh, you know, we're, we're crazy, we, we don't understand, uh, we're, we're stupid somehow. But yes, we have this system which is supposed to be eminently sensible has brought us all to the brink of destruction and, and seeks to accelerate that by driving people back into their cars. I mean, that's the reality of it. They want to cut public transport, the greenest form of transport, and drive people back into their polluting cars. So, I mean, I, I think that there, there's no joined up thinking in this government. That's quite obvious anyway, but uh, it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the, the environment that we're all uh, dependent on needs public transport and needs cheap public transport so people don't use their cars. With, with regards to public transport, the whole idea is it's public transport, isn't it? It's meant to be there based on need. What effect have you seen of people like, you know, we have awful an awful time in the northeast 
where people might need to get to a job interview and they live in a village, but they don't have a bus route that goes through their village because it's not profitable. Um, so like, you know, what what's caused that? What what's caused the problems of like us having not enough bus routes, not enough uh, not enough public transport? Because I know like uh, Kat, you're London based, aren't you? But you understand this, and you understand like the Yorkshire side of it as well. From you know how poor the services can be there as well. Um, so what causes that kind of problem? Well, it's, it's deregulation. What happened is um, you used to have public transport authorities. And they would have profitable routes and they would have routes that were not so profitable or maybe loss-making routes. And the profitable routes would have cross-subsidized the routes that were uh, were, were not profitable. Uh, but what, what happened when it was privatized, um, you had private companies coming in and basically they dropped the non-profitable routes. So if you're living in a village, tough luck. You know, they, they can't afford to run uh, four buses a day to that village anymore um, because that doesn't make a profit. But what they can do is have more in the city centre where people are using them more frequently. They'll run those routes because they make money out of them. And that, in a nutshell, what is what happened with bus deregulation. And that's why you've got such poor transport. And of course, again, I mean, uh, we're all waiting for the Northern Powerhouse. I think that's been put back by a couple of decades now. But I have to say, anybody was daft enough to have voted for the Tories for the fact that they were going to do anything for the North. I mean, these people don't care about anything North of Watford. That's reality. As, as long as they can sew up uh, south of Watford, they know that they've got the majority that they need in this in Parliament. So uh, if people were were sort of uh, you know conned into that, you know more full them. But yeah, that's that's the problem: deregulation and privatisation. Thanks for that, um, Jane. We've got a few comments coming in, and also if you want to put any opinions in here as well, Jane, uh, you're very valuable as well. Thank you. I always want to put opinions in. So, um, yes, we've had quite a lot of really good comments. So Neil's been really good tonight. Everyone's been very good, but Neil's been very, very good. Um, so Neil um, wanted to ask what Steve and Kat think about the police crime court sentencing bill and how that could impact on picketing um, and strike action. Um, I know that's a big question itself. I just wanted to say that this is about it's about um, passenger safety too because I've felt unsafe on several occasions catching public transport before and cutting staff from the stations and transport is going to make your travel much more stressful it's going to make you less safe as a passenger so the staff are doing this for everyone's sake it's not just for their better conditions but for us and um, also I wanted to say um, what about the disruption to the lives of the staff? Because actually I was reading today what the proposals are that the staff are up against and it's absolutely disgusting what's being suggested. And I think if any one of us who have a nice office job were asked to suddenly start just start working nights from next week, you know, and turn our life upside down and be told that, you know, so many people are going to be made redundant and we'll just cover it, we, we wouldn't be happy about it. And it's not fair to treat people like that. Um, but I will let some other people get some comments in. Um, Mia um, has meant just to say they shame people for using cars, you know, but what's the alternative when you don't have affordable or accessible public transport available to you? And so many people don't. London's obviously a much better place for that than other areas, but a lot of places in the country are really bad. Um, and Quantum Skyline was wanting to ask about working relationships after a strike action, whether successful or not so successful, and whether people are, uh, you know, have fears about strange relationships if they after that when they return to work if they do support the strike if that plays a role 
so that's a lot of questions there for you <laughs> sorry oh i mean i'll jump on the on the night shift uh, one just briefly i'm a health and safety rep so it's something i know a little bit about and and doing night shift work shortens your life literally it shortens your life and doing rotational night shift work so by that i mean you, like my shift pattern uh, that i'll be going back to in january is early's late and nights so that's rotational so having a big set of nights i do seven night shifts in a row um impacts it, it impacts your health um, more greatly than if you were doing permanent nights for example but both of those things shorten your life we work extreme shifts as i, I said earlier with drivers booking on at 4 30 in the morning dead early starting at five in the morning dead lates finishing at one two in the morning um you know it does uh, that fatigue has an impact um but also just briefly uh, in regards to to kill the bill uh, I mean, you've, I think I've been on this show before when I've been at the Kill the Bill protests, our union uh, and London Transport Region. We've even got banners made, uh, 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 you know, are very much in opposition to it. And we have to be so sharply aware of how many, many things are threatened, are threatened by that. Uh, and so, some of which are, are beyond the power at which we can control by protest on the street. And some of which is, it threatens everybody. And, the, and, it, and it is a specific threat to trade unionists taking industrial action. I mean, uh, I think I completely agree with Kat, but I mean, I think the, the, the bigger picture is this, we're, we're moving towards a totalitarian state. Um, the, the attacks on civil liberties and again, a lot of them carried out under the cover of COVID are, are quite startling. You know, the, the right to protest, the right to peacefully, peacefully protest is now in jeopardy. Um, it really is. And I think that, you know, whether you agree with our tactics or not, people like Extinction Rebellion are actually there putting their money where their mouth is. They're prepared to take, you know, quite, I'd imagine quite what people would consider extreme actions, gluing themselves to roads to stop uh, cars going through. But then, What's the extreme is, is somebody growing themselves the, the road to stop climate catastrophe. Is that extreme? When, when as one of your, your questioners said, the government are driving people into polluting cars by not giving them access to public transport. You know, we all know we're, we're, we're the ice caps are melting. We all know that by 2030, large section in London will be flooded regularly. Um, the rest of the country is the same. And... Uh, they're criminalizing protests. So I think that um, it's it's very, very uh, important that we as trade unionists see that that's going to be used against us as well. Absolutely um, used against us. The the work the work life balance thing, yeah. Um, again, Kat's got that spot on. Um, how dare they think that they can get rid of thousands of jobs and then destroy the lives of people who are left by saying, well, you're going to have to work every weekend. Uh, you know, some people are divorced, they don't see their children, uh, except at weekends and, and holidays. And they've been told, well, you, you, you know, tough luck, you just, uh, you'll just have to wait until uh, it's, it's a school break or something like that, the, the school holidays. Uh, you won't be able to see your kids during the week, so or try at weekends. So, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things at play, but I think the main thing is in about relationships. Uh, look, every trade unionist knows as soon as they go on strike, especially reps, They've got a target on their back. Um, they've got they they've got a target on their back, and management are going to go for them. I mean, I was I was sacked as a, a when I was a rep um, more than once, and uh, that's something we deal with. But um, at the end of the day, we're in a war, and when you're in a war, there's going to be casualties. And uh, 
if if people hate the sight of me uh, when I go on strike, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think it's a really good thing because they'll be seeing a lot of me. I'm not going to give up. <laughs> I'm still going to be there. And if they can't deal with that, then that's up to them. With regards to you talked there about like the the police and crime bill, and I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I'll give you a bit of context here. Like as a teacher, I've noticed that when we go really, really draconian and start to make everything a rule break, sometimes they think, well, you know, if I don't know, if if having the wrong colour shoes on is going to be a big deal. I might as well not wear any uniform at all. Um, do we think that like coming down on us really, really hard and criminalizing things that have been civil liberties for years and years and years, do you think it'll form some sort of backlash? Do you think like more and more ordinary people might think, actually, if I'm going to get really into trouble, if I'm going to get 51 weeks for um, having some glue in my pocket, uh, which could potentially be used to glue myself to my friend, should I go further? You know, is it worth going further if that's going to be what happens to me if I do something that's pretty minor? But, but the thing is, it's going to be used selectively, isn't it? I mean, they're not going to use it on everybody. They haven't used the anti-trade union laws on everybody. They'll use it selectively. So what they'll do is they'll pick out examples. They'll pick out people who, who are known for their views, who are known uh, to be in opposition to the government, who, who are known leaders in trade union movements and rank and file movements who are known in uh, protest movements, and they'll go for them. They make an example out of them. I mean, they, 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 they attacked Extinction Rebellion. They gave them those massive uncalled for uh, sentences because they were actually having an effect. They were getting into the press. They weren't being able to keep them out of the press because it was causing disruption. And there you go, nail them to the cross, make people look at them and go, that's what's going to happen to you if you don't obey. And that's their strategy. And there is a past to this, you know, and I've, I've spoken before on this show about my anti-fracking activism, but back in 2015, 2016, in my parents' village, people were getting arrested uh, using a section of the, the Labour Trade uh, the Labour, the Trade Union and the Labour Relations Act. My apologies if I've got that, that wrong. So you had act, environmental activists um, having that act used against them. And what I saw the police do, I saw myself, I saw them do, was pick out the people they thought were the leaders and then tell them that they couldn't go within a mile of that site. And then the charges would get dropped some months later, but they would have prevented somebody who they saw as key from being there. And what we've gone almost, we've gone almost full circle to now we've, we've seen the police crime and, and sentencing bill come through bringing in all of these things, and, and Steve nailed it on the head before, you know, according to the um, the Human Rights Act, our, our right to protest, our lawful right to peacefully protest, but also, to be very specific, peaceful doesn't mean quiet. In, you know, peaceful can be disruptive. Um, peaceful can be noisy. Peaceful can be angry. Um, you know, the word, the word, when they say, when you hear it and, it gets said, said a lot in the debates about the, the right to peacefully protest. That doesn't mean we're sat here really, really quiet like mice in a really polite line. Uh, and I think we need to value as a society the right to be angry uh, and the right to agitate. Brilliant. Um, Jane, any comments? Um, yeah, Neil says that the Act was 
T-U-L-C-R-A 1992. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and um, he's also mentioned he remembers a live stream that Steve did. Is it from the DOO strike or the Jewish strike? In a meeting with managers, uh, they called the police on you uh, because they didn't want to negotiate with you, which is Yeah, that, that was actually during a, a cleaners representation. And what they do with cleaners is absolutely vile because a lot of cleaners, English isn't their first language, and a lot of them, um, you know, are, are worried about their immigration status and things like that. So what they'll do is so they'll call them into an office and um, they'll ask them to sign new contracts, which are, you know, uh, worse than their terms and conditions and basically save the management money. And they didn't want to let, well, they didn't tell us as a union that they were even doing this. So we got tipped off by cleaners and I went down there to represent people. And uh, they ended up, they ended up calling the police to try to get me removed from the meeting. So I was saying to the police, well, these people are breaking the law. Uh, why, why are you not arresting them? And eventually they abandoned the meeting, but they did, you know, obviously they, the first resort was not to have a sit down and talk to the trade union. It was they call the police and uh, intimidate the cleaners and they sign a new contracts. And that goes on all the time. You know, it goes on all the time. Shocking, that's so shocking. I'm disappointed that the police didn't tell them to go away when they called as well. Well, the police are an arm of the state. I mean, you know, again, I hate to spoil anybody's illusions, but the police are not on your side. <laughs> they're not, they're on the side of the people that run the country and they, they will hit you over the head if they're told they hit you over the head by the people that run this country. That's who the police are. Frightening times then with the government we've got at the moment, because <laughs> I think the, the government we've got at the moment is quite happy for them to bash us over the head quite a lot. Well, they so, prefer the Labour government. We're, we're quite happy to um, do the same thing. <laughs> I haven't known any government that haven't been prepared to do that. That's, actually, we had a comment, um, I think, from Paul Smith mentioned that he's not actually hopeful that um, we'd see a lot of improvements in public transport under the current Labour leadership. I don't know if we want to get into that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we can dig into that. And I'm, you know, I'm not a member of the Labour Party, but I did, I do think Andy McDonald's manifesto when he was, when he was um, the Shadow Transport Minister, was a decent bit of work that 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 the Labour the, the Labour engine didn't even promote. By the way, um, you know, but yeah, I don't think that exists now. Uh, I, I think we've just we've got a different Shadow Rail Minister now, uh, and you know, Shaps, who is the Secretary of State. Um, for transport is a massive Bojo Brown nose, um, you know, uh, and he's got his eyes on on a different prize. He's going to do what he's told. Um, that's it, you know. And we've got the situation we have in London, in which we have a Tory government falling out with a so-called Labour mayor, um, and and the workers, of which I am one, are caught in the middle of this politicking, you know. And the mayor has a very clear choice. Um, he sides with the Tories or he sides with workers. And at the moment, uh, I believe he's making the wrong choice. How uh, Just just as RMT people, how did that make you feel when he put out that tweet saying, like, you know, basically casting the RMT and the people who are going on strike, uh, the people who work in that place as being some kind of enemy to the rest of everyone else? How did that feel? I mean, I wasn't surprised, um, you know, um, I wasn't surprised that that's what came out of Sadiq's mouth, uh, but I was angry. Uh, I was angry. Of course I was. I, I'm a human being. I have feelings uh, and I'm a worker. And, and what he said, I, I took as being personally insulting. Um, but 
I wasn't surprised. I mean, I'm pretty sure Livingston did it, by the way. Yes. Boris always yeah. did it but yeah. when he was mayor. Livingston did it when he was mayor, you know. So he's not the first. He probably won't be the last. Well, we, we, we don't actually have a, a party of Labour, do we? We don't have a party that represents working class people. There was a the Corbyn revolution and we've had the counter revolution. And the counter revolution has made it quite clear that Starmer's a safe pair of hands. He's not going to challenge the power or the money or, or the influence of the people that run this country, the corporations and their vested interests. And uh, he's, he's lining up a, a meek second 11 uh, for when the Tories maybe go under a tsunami of sleaze, I think that's probably, there's probably people in the ruling class going, well, look, Stammer's a, a safe pair of hands, whereas Boris Johnson is a is a bit of a maverick. You know, they, in many ways, I think there's, there's sections of the ruling class in this country who would prefer Stammer because he is he is just going to do nothing. It's going to be business as usual for capitalism. Uh, it's going to be a tax on the workers as usual. He's Muppet City Can in, uh, in London has uh, carried on a fantastic labour tradition of, of attacking workers in struggle. I mean, Sadiq should be out leading if, if he was anything to do with a working class. And, uh, he always he always refers to his dad being a bus driver. He'd be out defending transport workers on the picket lines with us, fighting the government, but he's not doing that. He's attacking them. Do you think people are politically missing a trick there? Because like, I always think, even, even from a point of view of... I don't know, if you've been really, really cynical and you just wanted votes, the Tories are going after work and class votes and they're going after it in a variety of ways, as we know, they're going about it because of perceived racism of the working class, which I think is a complete lie, by the way. I don't think working class people are any more racist than any other section of society, possibly less so. Um, but, you know, they, they go after that kind of rhetoric and, and stuff to try and court work and class voters. Why isn't a mainstream political party going after the votes of people who work and people like it's almost like this the the ruling class are doing you a favor the management class are doing you a favor by giving you a job you're quite lucky to have a job um and work for someone else that seems to be the mantra going through like every every section of political society why is no one taking advantage of the fact that actually if you say to workers I'm going to give you a much better deal and I'm going to be on your side. There's a lot of votes in workers. Most people are workers rather than most people being management bosses. Why aren't people doing that? There, there, is, a, there is a side to that which a lot of people, uh, workers, don't understand that. A lot of workers, you know, I suppose the classic term for it is false consciousness, um, which is they believe that they've got more in common with the managers and their aspirations that they want to be in, managerial, in the managerial class maybe. But you're right. I mean, uh, fundamentally, your point's correct. I mean, there's far more of us than there are of them. And why doesn't they? Uh, why doesn't they, a party stand up and say that? Well, I mean, to be to be fair, Corbyn, in in, in essence, in 2017, did. I mean, the the massive uh, the the massive betrayal uh, that most people thought that Corbyn performed was when he said he capitulated to people like Starmer, and uh, you know, Macdonald and Abbott. Amongst others, you know, let's let's uh, let's not uh, beat about the bush. Who who said that um, they wanted another referendum? And you know, when 2017, he said he would abide by the result of a referendum, no matter what it was. People believed them, and then when he changed his tune, people didn't believe him. And it's things like the renationalisation of the railway, the, the uh, bus companies, all that. 
simply wouldn't have been possible uh, if we'd uh, maintained uh, membership of the European Union. So, you know, Labour was stuck in a real contradiction. And, and to be quite honest, uh, Corbyn bottled it. He bottled it on several fronts. That was one of them. He also bottled it because he let good comrades be hounded out of the Labour Party and did nothing. And he fed them, the, let them be fed to the wolves one by one. And of course, the wolves eventually came and ate him. So uh, a failure of leadership is the is the answer. Is it also like a failure of like how we're communicating with people as well? Um, you know, like, uh, again, I think a lot of unions almost become a little bit professional. I saw certainly in um, in teaching, I sometimes think there's a there's a tendency for people to start to behave like the bosses a little bit and it, it within the union and they want to look like they're on an equal footing to the bosses and they dress like the bosses and stuff that like i always respect a union rep that goes in just like wearing the clothes they want to wear and they don't try and look like someone who was trying to get elected in 1997 you know so um yeah i'm, I'm all I mean, for that i mean that's that's absolutely right i mean i think they're there are different sections of the working class as well. And, and a lot of working class people have been brought up being told that what they are is wrong and they should aspire to be middle class. And a lot of skilled workers and other workers have bought into that. They've bought into that, um, you know, mindset that they what they are is wrong. It's it's not it's not an enviable thing to be working class. They shouldn't be proud of being working class. They should aspire to be middle class. And, you know, I think uh, they are also... So in the RMT and, and in other unions who are completely contrary to that. We, we're very proud of being working class. And, you know, we the way we dress and the way we talk to bosses is the way we talk to you tonight, you know? Mm. <laughs> that's, that's not always popular with certain sections of our membership either, I'll be telling you. <laughs> and how, but how we are as community, you know, because uh, the support that, like, London Transport Region, we're a pretty tight bunch, bunch of folk. Doesn't mean we all agree, but, you know... Mm. But we are we are there for each other, um, you know. Whether that's fleet engineering, trains, stations, revenue grades, cleaners, you name it, you know. And at London Transport, you know, we're we're something like eleven thousand something strong. Uh, but it is through that community, through participating in our branches, through meeting, through showing solidarity to to other people's causes, uh, in which we continue to understand and see each other and understand what those struggles are. So those relationships are absolutely key. You know, it's not just about knowing your enemy. You need to know, you need to really know your friends too. Uh, I know I know how to do my job. I know how to run a tube station. You tell me to fix a train, I wouldn't have a clue. Uh, and if there's a dispute going on with fleet, um, I'm going to go to their branch. I'm going to go and, and chat and ask them what's that, that what that's about. And that helps me to understand. So the ability to be community is absolutely vital. Um, brilliant. Uh, Jane, anything coming in? Yeah. Or have um, you got any opinions as well? I want to hear your opinion too. Oh, no, I, no, I've got loads of opinions. I'll let some other people have a turn for a little bit. Um, Mia, um, I thought made a really good point before. Um, she was saying now how our basic human emotions like anger fear and sadness which are very understandable in the situations such as the situation that the rmt staff find themselves in at the moment their reaction to injustice 
um, and abuses, but they're portrayed often in the media as, you know, instability or a danger rather than, a, you know, looking at them as a logical reaction and looking at what's causing them, what are the injustices, what are the abuses, um, and what, how do we address those? Um, the, you know, the media's reaction is to try and shut up the people who are being affected rather than let the public know what's causing it, really. Um, then um, Andy Burnham, I think it was Neil that mentioned that Andy Burnham is bringing the bus in Manchester into public ownership, which is fantastic. Um, then Paul Smith mentioned that one, one problem that we have in this country, a big problem, is a lack of political education and that we really need that for working people so they can run, understand a bit better what's going on and the way we're being played um, by the establishment and the media. And Neil... Um, made a comment about um, the fact that the establishment don't want the working classes to vote. They don't want to take away the right to vote. So they just want to demoralise people and think there's nothing to vote for. It's in their interest that people can't be bothered to vote because they think we're all the same. Um, and the voter ID that's coming in is yet another hurdle they can put in the way of people, you know, feeling that they want to engage politically. I mean, I think political education is absolutely key. Same with lifelong learning. Um, I did the RMT political school probably eight, nine years ago, uh, and, and it, it profoundly uh, informed what my politics is now. Um, uh, and the ability for unions to run those courses must not be constrained. It already has been, by the way, with, you know, the, losing the government funding for union learning reps, for example. But a lifelong political education is absolutely vital. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that uh, it, it depends what you mean by political education. I think that uh, some unions run courses and we, we're, we're quite guilty of this as well. I think it's we bring people down to Parliament and give them a tour of Parliament. And, uh, you know, that that's the existing power structures that can't be ignored. But the fact that there's more politics happen on the streets, more politics happen in the picket line and the, and the mess room and the workplace. And that's where political discussions have to take place. And on the picket lane, you know, uh, the fundamental principle of, of working class politics is the picket lane, I think. You know, uh, if you cross that picket lane, then you, you're a scab. And, uh, you know, no matter whose mate you are, who, who, how nice you are, uh, you're a scab. And I think that that's how um, many, many militants in our union were educated. We were educated in the, in the politics of real power. Uh, us against the employers, uh, us standing with our workmates of different religions, different colours against the employers. That's why, you know, I hope I hope uh, most of our members aren't racist. We saw who the real enemy was, was the boss. So I'm all for political education, but that doesn't end at a, a, walk, a walk through Parliament and an introduction to your local MP. Oh, I, and I completely agree, Steve. And I think about, Paul, I think about how I, I first got to know you. Um, so I went to Tollpoddle. I ended up camping next to Heatherwood. Um, we then met up at Durham at the Miners Gala. I then got involved in the Women's Banner Group. Uh, and, and you guys have been my family since then, you know. And I didn't go on a course to get to know you. And, and we've mm. shared each other's histories from, you know, in, you know, my history being born and raised in Yorkshire. Uh, and I know your history in Durham and, and Seaham. And I know I know Heather's history and her story, but the way I've got to know that is by spending time with you, uh, for, with us spending time with each other and talking and, and talking about what our lived experience is, and, and through things like Socialist Think Tank, in which we remain in that solidarity to to a slightly wider audience. Yeah. Um, 
I think I really like what you were saying as well, both of you, um, about it being a discussion. And I think people mistake education and some people are like, right, here's some political education. I'm going to tell you some things. Yeah. And a massive part of education is listening. And you educate one another, don't you? And you can't learn anything by not listening to people. And I think there's, 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 do you think there's like a bit of snobbery around working class people sometimes from people within the movement? Because I know people who just won't really speak to working class people. They'll tell people what working class people should think and what's best for them. Never talk to them. They don't want to talk to working class people. They're a bit scared I'll, of them. Oh God! I'll tell you. Now, I'll tell you. I'll tell you now. I, I think that our movement is becoming a place where working class people are being are being moved out, and I think that's intentional. And I think that um, what we have is we've got an equalities agenda. We've got equalities for everything except people being working class. Where's Where's the quota of working class people that have to be? Uh, given jobs or, or or moved on like that, and there's there's the um, I think there's a real fear amongst middle the middle classes uh, because they do see us as uh, these lumpens who are all racist and sexist and homophobic, and they really believe that that's what we are, you know. And uh, I think it's you know extremely patronising, and I think that there is you know, look, people are formed by the society they live in, no matter what class that they're in. And people come to politics and they come to trade unions with all sorts of uh, all sorts of wrong thinking in their head, you know. And and uh, what happens with what used to happen with the trade union movement that with with experience and with talking to people, um, that would be sort of uh, taken out of them. And now we have people coming in. Well, let's have a safe space in the let's have a safe space in the uh, in, in, in trade unions, and you can't swear and you can't do this and you can't do that. So you're setting a bar. Most working class people don't want to attend branch branch meetings anymore because it's not an atmosphere that they're safe in, that they feel safe and are comfortable in. It's a completely alien atmosphere. And what the, one of the one of the repercussions of that is, I think that the only people that are are are, are feigning an interest in working class people are the far right, because they'll come along, and they'll instead of trying to talk them out of uh, maybe prejudices people hold, and they, and you know having having that discussion. They'll play on those prejudices and say, well, it's not the boss's fault. It's that Asian's fault next door. It's that Muslim's fault. It's that black person's fault that you haven't got a house. Whereas in the trade union movement, if um, you know people might come with those ideas, but what we have to do is have a discussion. And we say, well, actually, it's not. It's the, the people that make decisions. It's the government. It's the local council. It's the politicians. And behind that, it's the, the, ruler, the real rulers of this country. So uh, I think it's, there, there's a real danger at the trade union movement. People, uh, in a lot of instances, working class people are being are being moved out of it. Just to, just to, I don't know what you said there as well. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a big push from the Tory party uh, in education to have a new category, which was white, white work, working class boys. Um, why only white boys got a working class category? Like, you know, when you've got... A, any person can be working class, you know, like the, the color of your skin has nothing to do with, with your class. And I think that was another divisive thing they threw in there that like, oh, well, you know, that you can only to, to fit in with that stereotype that you talked about, if it's only white people who were, who were working class and they will therefore be racist and stuff. And it was, it's a really, it's a really dangerous thing. And it's still hanging around in education at the moment. Like it is massively worrying that working class people are performing worse at school and working class boys are performing worse at school. I don't think it's the colour of the skin that's making them do that. I think that's the whole working class 
are struggling with something that's completely uh, alien to them and completely doesn't cater to their needs whatsoever, uncatered to their interests whatsoever. But I think that that you know that's all part of the same. The same see, see, see the point is once you start breaking down the working class and the and people will do this on the left they'll say black working class boys or or Asian working class boys right or Asian working class girls once you start breaking down that class they obviously the obviously next step is well you, you've named them so there's a white working class I mean that's hmm. that's that's the logical uh, conclusion of identity politics if you name everybody else then the people that are left are white working class right so. So we have to stop thinking. Uh, we have to start thinking as a class. I mean, that's that's what socialists do. We think as a class. But what 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 we can't have is uh, Diane Abbott on the one hand saying, "Well, uh, black working class boys um, are suffering, so I've got to move my son uh, to an area where black working class boys don't suffer," and then then get up, you know, really really upset when people mention white working class boys. I mean, if there's a funding, uh, we were, if there's a crisis in funding, we work in class education, it's affecting all working class kids, right? White, black, Asian. So more resources should be put into it. But the fact is that the people that are pushing identity politics have to realize that this is a logical conclusion of it. Hmm. It's really interesting. Um, okay, I'm, is there any more comments coming in, Jane? Because I kind of want to push on to something about the pandemic as well after this. So uh, anything coming in? Um, yeah, I won't go into my diatribe about intersectionality. <laughs> I don't 100% agree with Steve, but I agree. I agree. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> let, let's do it because we always like a little bit of, uh, you know, because we tend to agree on 99% of everything here. Of course. So. Well, no, I mean, I, I think uh, it's Paul. And that's going to mean different things to different people. It, it can be quite an explosive area, but I think uh, literally, literally, what what people think it means and what what does it mean? But intersectionality, understanding, you know, essentially one of the points Steve's making is we need to understand each other's lived realities, right? And as working class people, that is a big common experience, uh, and there are different factors that influence that, and that is what I mean when I say intersectionality. So it's it's about understanding. And as Paul, you've said, Jane and Steve have said, we have to get to know one another. We can't be strangers. We need to be community and be there. Um, I, you know, I do think that safeguarding has to play a role. So safe spaces in, in the light of safeguarding, Steve, I would absolutely advocate for, but, um, uh, I agree with you. I do. I do think that there is an element in, in the wider trade union movement in which it's not allowing working class people to represent themselves and their class. Okay. So, so can I say what my um, my interpretation of intersectionality is? Sure. Go for it. Well, working class people are oppressed. If you're a black working class person, you're probably going to be more oppressed than a white working class person. If you're a a, a gay working class person, you're going to be more oppressed. So all those, if you're a woman, you're probably going to be more oppressed. Well, you will be, in, you know, uh, than, than a male worker. So all those things overlap, right? But what we have is we don't have that. that that's true intersectionalism. And it all, it, it takes account of class politics. What we have in, in this country and what's being pushed by micro-organizations on the left who have got a, who've taken up this thing from the States. And by the way, identity politics uh, got masses of money in the campuses in the 1960s and 1970s in the United States. Look where these things have come from uh, because Marxists were getting a hold in, in university campuses. And this was something that was created um, to, to detract from it and 
to counter that. So what they what they sort of a caricature really of intersectionalism is in this country is that you only fight and, and only only somebody who's who's actually in those shoes can understand oppression. What an absolute load of toss, right? Uh, white, white working class people in, in Ireland, right, because there weren't many black working class people, suffer, suffered and suffer oppression from this state. You don't need to be black to understand what oppression is, to sympathise uh, with somebody who is black, right? You might not have exactly the same lived experience, but you can understand press, oppression and you can empathise. I mean, that, that, that's the reality. We have people in this country now who are walking around, uh, and their mantra is, unless you are actually that person, you don't know what that person feels like, and you're, it's impossible for you to empathise. And I completely disagree with that. I think it disorientates people, and it's completely against the class perspective. I think uh, I think we're getting large, largely agreement again now. We're starting. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> don't let's argue again. Um, but... <laughs> that, that is the fundamental basis of solidarity. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, um, Jane, let's go to some comments there. That was, uh, I think, that one's sorted. That was very interesting, though. Um, Paul Smith just made a comment about the fact that he, he feels the unions have been taken over by the middle classes who see it as a career and I I kind of feel as well that um, I feel there, there's a barrier to working class people getting involved in politics and any sort of official structures in this country because a lot of the time the way working class people might express themselves verbally might not be very acceptable to those structures and might make them very easy game to you know to what they've been said being misconstrued or sometimes maybe what they've said is offensive but there's a way to deal with that with conversation rather than deciding someone needs to be written off forever so I kind of yeah I think there's a lot of strong feelings about this and it's a bit of a um, dangerous one to talk about because I'm always very worried about how I express that opinion if I talk about it in case I say something incredibly offensive and inconsiderate Um, so apologies if I have there. Um, Quantum Skyline, um, I know you wanted to go into the pandemic Paul but Quantum Skyline and Neil had had a few comments. Um, Quantum Skyline asked about is there a correlation between the rising cost of train tickets and the public support of working workers rights for fair paying conditions um, so a return ticket for them on to London on Monday is going to be nearly £400 and Neil's come back and said no obviously there's no correlation it's just driven by train companies desire for profits but I read Quantum Skyline's question to be is the public perception not you know not are these these demands the reason for the rising prices but do the public perceive it to be that way do you think and is that a tool that's used against the unions well well yes it, it certainly is and i mean if you look at it um, i've quoted already i don't know if uh, quantum was in at that point but for the last two years workers in the train operating companies and there were relevant a pay freeze so that's not contributed the prices and tickets going up at all what uh, what contributed the prices of tickets going up is the 1.5 billion pounds that have been paid out in share and shares the people who have had absolutely no responsibility in running the railways at all they sit at home and they count their share money so um it's obviously uh something that the Tories and the, you know, I, I'd imagine any politician, Blair did it. Um, they, they try to portray the, the fact that we, we by and large, earn decent wages and decent pensions as the reason for your tickets being so so expensive. But that's not the case. I mean, I, I think we, we the it's been proved that if we had a nationalised system and cut out all these uh, middle people, um, we'd have a far less expensive railway. We would have far, far more efficient railway. Even the government's own 
figures show that. You know, there are billions of pounds every year which could be saved by cutting out the contractors. And that's where your money is going. Of course, the media is not going to say that. Whenever we try to raise that, it's never been put across. But that's the reality of it. I'd also say fundamentally as a socialist, uh, what I would, what I think is right would be um, public transport free, the point of access, you know. Yeah. 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 It looks like that was exactly what you were getting at, exactly what uh, Quantum Skyline was getting at uh, there, Jane. So well done. The thing, something interesting you said, Jane, that you worry about, um, you know, saying something that's going to be offending people. I think we've got to get to the point where if someone says something offensive to someone else, you've got to take people at face value. Like we can't go around ex- like saying something offensive doesn't necessarily mean it was intended that way. Sometimes just to having that explained to you and saying sorry should be enough. But I think we're living in this ridiculous society where like a little slip up means people being written off. And I'm thinking about people like oh. who were like old women and stuff like that in in uh, Labour Party meetings who've used the wrong word and then someone's jumping down the throat and saying, you can't say that. You can't. Where could it just been easily said, well, we don't really use that word anymore. And they go, e, sorry, and then move on. Why does it like... That's, but that's a, deliberate, that's a deliberate policy by the middle class left. They exclude workers from uh, the, the, the Labour Party. It's not just the Labour Party. If you look at most of the so-called socialist groups in this country, they've adopted, they've adopted exactly the same thing because... They're from the student union, they're from some middle class background. And rather than have class struggle, rather than think as a class because they're not of that class, uh, they want to exclude working class people because they're they're not comfortable with them being in the same space, to be quite honest. I mean, Angela Rayner, for one brief second, went up in my estimation when she she called Tories scum. (laughs) And and she had to eat her words. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's it's like it's not the worst thing that has happened, is it? It's like calling someone scum isn't as bad as actually doing scummy things. So maybe they should like if they don't want to be called scum, they should probably do less scummy things. I mean, it was a, a Tories are scum. She was correct. Fair. Um. <laughs> um. So moving on to the things that Tories have done to really, really damage working class people. I want to talk about the the pandemic now and and how that relates to your action. And then we're going to finish off on talking about how we win because RMT, I am absolutely delighted to say, you definitely, in my opinion, win a lot. You definitely seem to win for your members, which is a really good thing and it's something we can all learn from. But at one point during the pandemic, I was looking at things and I was thinking, you know what, opinion's changing People realise how important these workers are. These people who are out in the middle of the pandemic, people who are working in transport, people who are working in refuse collection, a lot of, in a lot of cases, teachers, NHS, um, you know, these people who had to work all of a sudden went up in everyone's estimation. And now we're seeing a bit, of, um, well, not even a bit, a massive backlash about these people. These are no longer key workers because remember, they'd just been getting called low-skilled by Pretty Patel and then they became key workers and now we're back to probably being low-skilled again in a lot of these jobs that I'm talking about. Um, So, you know, how did we let that happen and are we going to let it happen or are we going to do something about reminding people about the people who actually make this country work? Well, I think what, what 
what happens and what has happened on, uh, you know, I've seen it happen on picket lines I've been on is you have people saying, I wish I got paid this much or I wish I had those terms and conditions or I wish I had that. And it, and it goes back to, again, having the having that dialogue and going, OK, you want to shout at me and walk away. What's the point of that? But do you want to have a chat? Because actually, this is how I achieve that. And you can do that in your workplace. And, and, and let's link up and let's speak to each other. Uh, I think pitting people, uh, uh, pitting workers against workers is just is just, uh, you know, a right wing government going for an easy win because it distracts us from uniting together and, and fighting together, uh, you know, and it's been so great to see the solidarity action. So, um, you know, between UCU and RMT, for example, we have more in common with each other. Uh, and it's been great to see that different unions going and supporting different picket lines. And I, I really do hope that that continues. Uh, I, th I think it will be vital that we continue to work together as a trade union movement, you know, and a, a significant amount of which, you know, is not very left wing at all. We, we, we do need to understand that. We need to open our eyes and be, be quite honest about that and coordinate and coordinate together with those people that we do feel reflect our values. You can do your rant about Brendan Barber now, Steve. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I think Arthur Skirgle, I mean, you've mentioned minor strikes tonight and I think Arthur Skirgle summed it up when somebody said to him, did you realise that um, on the General Council of the TUC, you had 11 uh, spies and MI5 informers? And Arthur Skirgle's, well, I, I was surprised at that. I thought there'd be many more. You know, and I think that um, that probably sums up the TUC and, and many of the unions out there. I think that they're they're, they, they feel that they've got a symbiotic relationship with capitalism. They feel that they are part of the system. People like Brendan Barber, uh, ex-general secretary of the TUC, is now Sir Brendan Barber, you know, for services to British capitalism or whatever. So um, I think that the, the whole trade union movement is in, in, a, in a bloody state. I mean, I think that uh, what, what the pandemic did do is show who really wants society and uh, they got they got scared by that didn't they uh, the government got scared by that the rulers of this country got scared by that because they seen actually that they were superfluous while the, the nhs worker the transport worker the the uh, dust worker wasn't and that's frightened them and now as you say the backlash has started they've got they now um, attack those people attack that perception that they don't actually function in society they're not necessary to society where the working class people are so how do we like how do we change that perception as well because uh, we often like to come up with something that we're going to actually do in uh, in the future so how do we make sure that people don't forget and that we remind people of the th of the people who actually do really help do make sure and, and without which like our whole entire system collapses well I think you're doing it tonight in a small way aren't you you're you're uh... With, with the very limited resources that you've got. I don't know how many people you've got on there, but um, you know we have literature from our class. Every, every class will write its own version of history, you know, and uh, we need working class people to be writing and recording our version of history. Every victory that we got, every time that we fight back and stop a, a defeat, we need to record that. We need to record how important we are as working class people in, in the running of a country and the running of the world. And, you know, we haven't got the resources. We aren't billionaires. We haven't got those resources. But what we have to do is use which resources we have. Uh, and we've got to just keep fighting. We've got to keep going, you know. Um, ultimately, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that there will be an awakening of people. They will see that uh, capitalism is bringing the planet the, 
the verge of destruction. And the only way around that is they actually have a socialist society where all our needs are planned for and we, we stop the destruction of the planet. Absolutely. Um, Jane, any comments or comments from you? Let's let's see what you think first, Jane. Um, oh, well, I'm just really grateful to the RMT. What you do is really brave. I'm really fortunate I've never been in a position where I've had to you know, take part in a strike before. And the thought of it fills me with fear, actually. And I'm a bit in awe of just how brave you guys are and the things you do. And Kat getting up at 3.30 in the morning when you're on holiday, you know, and that's, you know, because you care about other people and you want everyone to have a fair deal. So that gives me a lot of hope there are people doing that. Yeah. And uh, any any comments from people at home that have uh, popped in? Um, we've not had much during that last bit. I think people were all a bit mesmerised by Steve's talking. Um, I just I wanted to say thank you to Mia because she put a comment in before that says that um, she worries too all the time about whether she might say something offensive or outrageous. So thank you for that solidarity, Mia. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> okay, so let's let's move on to the the very final bit. Well, before we do like some closing comments. So this is uh, this is about winning. So, RMT, you've had some wins. Tell us about a few of the wins that you've had, why you've won, and uh, what's made the difference in your strike action or your solidarity. Um, I think I'm probably trying to give away what I think the answer to this is by using the word solidarity there. But, um, you know, what is special about the RMT? Why are you getting so many wins? There's nothing special about us. We're just like you. We're just ordinary people. Um, what what the difference is in a lot of the occasions is that our, when we go on strike, everybody knows because your train stopped running, your buses stopped running, or your tubes stopped running. But I think there are people out there that are, are equally fighting back the same as us. But we have an ethos, and um, you know, it, it was um, I think expounded by or certainly popularized by Bob Crow, and, and that is if you if you fight, you sometimes lose, but if you don't fight. Uh, you will always lose. And I think I'd soon see in the art of war, actually soon uh, started that off, but Bob uh, Bob popularised it, let's say. <laughs> and I think that's our ethos as a trade union. If you're going to be attacked, there's no guarantee of victory. I mean, with the guards disputes, there's still guards in some form on every train. Might not be the, with the terms and conditions we wanted. But if we hadn't have fought, if we hadn't been prepared in some instances to take 70 days of sustained action, those guards would all be gone now. You wouldn't have any safety on trains because the guards would be gone. Same with Cat can ex expand upon this. On the stations on London Underground, we got 600 jobs back. And when they when they cut those 600 jobs by taking sustained industrial action, and we build uh, we build relations with passenger groups, we build relations with other trade unions and uh, you know other trades councils and people who will support us and show us solidarity. But really, uh, the strategy has to be built around take an effective industrial action that's that's the uh, that's that you can't get away from that that is the crux of it yeah i mean absolutely like 2016 was the fit for the future dispute which i think steve was uh, was talking about on london underground and that's when um you remember at the time the uh, uh, the mayor was boris johnson and in his manifesto to get elected he said he would not close a single ticket office uh, and he then became the mayor of london and he then closed every single ticket office. Now, uh, the we, we fought and we won, uh, and during different stages, it was with other unions, and then we were out on our own. 
Uh, and we got it equated to 600 jobs, but on paper, I think it was 450 jobs back um, out of that dispute. That was a direct result. And I directly felt the impact of that because we still had a great loss to our system. We lost all of those, uh, all of the ticket offices basically went. So it, it, we won, but the kind of service that we provided was genuinely severely impacted. And essentially, from what I can tell, from what um, TFL are proposing that they would like to do is they're trying to achieve what they did back in 2016 and didn't get away with it. Uh, and we will fight them every step of the way. So is that why you think you win? Because you will fight them every step of the way? We can't hesitate, you know, and we need to educate each other and support each other and be there. And, and you know, branches are communities. Uh, we've, you've just got to put one foot in front of the other and get the work done. And you know what? Get up early. Go on a picket line. I know, you know, I know where Steve's going next. He's going to a picket line tonight. You know, that's the right thing. You don't have to think too much about it. You just need to go and do it. And you know what? Put some checks and balances in place. We, as, as activists, we exhaust ourselves really easily. Burnout is a thing. Be there for each other. Understand it. But just fucking do it. <laughs> um, Jane, there's a quick question coming, which I would be really interested in the answer. Mm, yeah, is that Quantum Skyline? Mm. Um, any recommendations for how workers can come together when their employer doesn't support or recognise unions? Yeah, you can uh, get the, if 50% of the workers want to be in a union, then the employers don't have any choice. The union goes to something called the uh, Central Arbitration Committee, CAC. And if 50% of the workplace wants to be in a union, you'll get uh, recognition straight away, you know, not straight away, but uh, you will get recognition. So the, the, the main thing is to go along and approach a trade union, get the trade union to come along, uh, appropriate to your workplace, and somebody will come in and help organise those workers. I didn't know that. Thank you. I didn't know that either. That's a brilliant answer. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you all each in turn now for um, for some closing comments and then we'll call it a night. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, by the way, for um, your comments at home. Really, really good. And thank you on behalf of Socialist Think Tank to the entire panel. You've been absolutely brilliant. Jane, I'm going to start with you. Um, I, actually, I just wanted to go back to what Kat just said branches of communities and that really struck me because I just feel we've lost that sense of community so much over I don't know the last 40 decades and that's a really nice way to look at it and I'm sure there's a huge amount of truth in that and um, that's something I'm going to be thinking about brilliant um, and Kat yeah, I mean, you know, more of this. Uh, we are community and uh, I'd encourage anyone like London Transport Region, RMT, if there's something going on in London you want us to know about and we can show solidarity with you, let us know. We'll be there. We'll be there to support you. And please come and support us on our picket lines. And uh, there are picket lines tonight. There are picket lines next weekend. There will be picket lines next year. Come and join us and let us know how we can support you. So solidarity, unity really is strength. Brilliant. Um, Steve, which picket line are you going to tonight? Uh, Leightonstone. Um, it's a night tube uh, picket line up at Leightonstone. So I'll be going up there. I said, I got my coat on. They've just given me a phone call. I'm a bit late. That's your fault. I'll blame you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate but, uh, it. But the, the sort of uh, closing comment is this. There's no one coming in a white horse to save you. Corbynism's finished. It's failed. They weren't strong enough. They didn't provide enough leadership. They weren't they weren't ruthless enough with the snakes in the fifth column in their own organisation. 
You're going to have to do it for yourself. You have to get off your backside and organize for yourself. It's all right sitting here getting ideas tonight, but you need to bring those ideas back into the workplace, back into your community and get people organized because they're coming for us and we need to fight back. Thank you so much. And uh, as I say, on behalf of Socialist Think Tank, we really appreciate it. If you want to become a member of Socialist Think Tank, it is free. We want people to get involved. Take it easy, Steve. See you later. Um, and uh, oh, I'll just quickly, quickly change this so I can do this bit. So if you want to become a member of Socialist Think Tank, you can. It is free or you can... Uh, give a donation if you want either way we're socialists we don't treat you any differently but we do appreciate everything that you do if you're listening back on the podcast you can make a comment or you can just subscribe to our podcast and stuff there's lots and lots of you from around the world who do listen to that um, and send us a message if you want to um, at uh, on our websites, uh, which hang on contact at socialistthinktank.com. Send us a message if you listen to the podcast and join it. If you ever have any questions, any suggestions about future shows, we really, really do appreciate all of your input. Thank you so much for everyone who is watching tonight, who was watching tonight. Please do share this video, um, share this around, tell people about it. And uh, subscribe to our YouTube, uh, follow us on Twitch and Twitter and like us on Facebook and uh, also join our Discord channel, which you can do after becoming a member of Socialist Think Tank. Listen back to all of our stuff. We probably have more content than anyone going and that probably includes the likes of Novara Media, etc. because we have absolutely loads of it. Um, so go and enjoy it. We have all sorts of different shows. Origins, which is about um, people's relationship with socialism. What is socialism to, to you is the question there. And we have so many brilliant people on there that you can learn so much from. Uh, we also have some shows called Social Ties, um, which are about community groups and people who are doing things and actions people are taking. And we also have um, Political Unmuted, which will be on on Tuesday. It's our last one of the year on Tuesday coming up. A variety of different guests. You can vote on what topics that we're going to talk about then. Um, and uh, yeah, that's always a good show hosted by John D. Clare. And, uh, yeah, we'll probably be back for Socialist Night Live next week and we might do something over Christmas. And sometimes we do weird things like me and Dan having a chat over on Twitch, which is, uh, again, quite bizarre and unplanned. We really should tell people about things like that. Anyway, um, have a really, really good night, everyone. Thank you so much to the panel and uh, solidarity to you all. And we will see you soon once I have found this last little jingle. Take care, everyone. Keep the red flag flying here